Amen. Luke chapter 14 tonight. Luke 14. So just a reminder, we have next week, next Tuesday, the 18th, we will end the year with Luke 15. And then obviously we have Christmas on a Tuesday, we have New Year's on a Tuesday, and because of scheduling conflicts with Basha, we are not meeting on the 8th or the 15th of next year. So when we stop on the 18th of December, we will not meet in here again until January the 22nd. Mark that down. Uh, Don't want anyone showing up on the 8th or the 15th wondering where in the world did the Oasis Bible study go? Okay? So just to remind, if you know of people that come that You know, you might want to let them know as well. Next Tuesday will be the last Tuesday until January the 22nd. Before we dive into our study tonight, I just felt very impressed by the Lord during our worship to to say these words. There may be somebody here tonight that this message is just for one person here. But I always feel like one, one person's worth it. So... There may be somebody here tonight that where you are in life, you want to be in such a different place than where you are, and you honestly are overwhelmed. You don't know how you're going to get from where you're at now to where you want to be or where you even think you should be. I want to encourage you that I've been there at times in my life too, and what God taught me in those times was, Jeff, I just want you to take the next step. I don't want you to try to figure it all out. I just want you to take whatever that next step is that you know you need to take with me. And I say that even on the heels of our Sunday message. I I had many, many people mention to me just how the Lord spoke to them through Sunday's message about how we as Christians can neglect so great a salvation. And that many times we find ourselves not in a good place spiritually, not because of any major overt sin or decision that we made, but sometimes it's just through neglect. And I say that because part of the problem of being a living sacrifice that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12 is a living sacrifice can crawl off the altar. And sometimes we as Christians need to just be willing to crawl back up on the altar and offer ourselves anew to God. And know that I don't know how all this is going to go. I don't know how I'm going to get from this point to where I want to go. But it starts with just that simple step of recommitment and rededication to God and putting our spiritual priorities first. If we do that, if we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, God promises us that all those other things that we're fretting over and we're worried about and we're anxious about and we're thinking about, those will all start to find their rightful place when we put God back in His rightful place. And we just sang about, I will exalt you. And, and the idea of exalting God is putting Him in His rightful place. Luke 14. This whole passage, as you see even there in the notes, 
Jesus is continuing to minister, but he's ministering in a very obviously challenging environment. And it's such an encouragement because it reminds us that we're not always going to be called by God to minister in the most opportune uh, set of circumstances. That in a sense, God sometimes is going to call us out into darkness to be in darkness so that his light can shine. And some of you, you, you work in some very difficult environments. Some of you out there in the world are around maybe challenging situations uh, at certain seasons of your life. And maybe you're going through that right now. And maybe even, as Nicole even said, sometimes the holidays and, and getting together sometimes with family, especially if they don't share your faith and they don't share your love of the Lord, it can be quite challenging. And yet we have to understand, just as Jesus did, that, that we're always on a mission, in a sense, for God. And that we have to be conscious that God sometimes allows us to be in those situations and places us in those environments so His light can shine through us. And that's exactly what Jesus did here in this chapter. If you've ever been invited over to a home, say for a meal or to hang out, or, or you invited others to your home and, and things got tense, then you're going to understand where Jesus was at as he shares this meal. Because really the first 24 verses, all of Jesus' teaching, if you will, in the first 24 verses of this chapter actually takes place around a dinner table at a meal where he seizes the opportunity to share the light of God with those around him. And especially at the beginning, even those who really... The reason they invited him is not because they loved him, not because they wanted to follow him, but actually they invited him here again to try to trip him up or try to catch him in something. And so again, it reminds us that sometimes we're put in a situation that may be personally uncomfortable. We may sense we're around darkness. We, we may uh, be challenged in our faith and all of that, but God still wants us to shine in those moments. And seize those opportunities. And sometimes those opportunities come at meal times or when we share times with others. So you'll notice in the first six verses. Now, one Sabbath when Jesus went to dine at the house of the leader of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There right in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy, edema, a swelling of the body. Literally, the Greek means a, a, a person that looks uh, watery if you will. He, he was swollen. He was bloated, if you will. And Jesus asked the experts in religious law and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent. So Jesus took hold of the man, healed him, and sent him away. Then he said to them, which of you, if you have a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? But they could not reply to this. You'll notice there in the notes, I put Jesus here. is ministering, but he's ministering in the midst of hypocrisy. Why? Well, first of all, notice these religious leaders, they had ulterior motives for inviting Jesus to this dinner. And I truly believe that the man with the edema was a plant. He wasn't there by accident. He was there on purpose. They wanted to see what Jesus would do. And in a sense, they already knew what Jesus would do, which to me is a testimony to Jesus and should be a challenge to us. 
they knew Jesus well enough to know that if there was somebody there that, that needed help, knowing Jesus, he's going to help them even if it's on the Sabbath day. And so we, that should be a challenge to us that people should know who we are and how we're going to react in each and every situation. And there should be a consistency there. There certainly was with Jesus. And yet they were watching Jesus instead of, in a sense, paying attention to themselves. They didn't think that they needed any help from God and that they were righteous before God and that, you know, they were okay. And in a sense, too, I I could have even put there, not only were they watching Jesus instead of themselves, they were watching Jesus instead of this man who had a need, who was right in front of them. Here was a man who truly was suffering And the only one that was paying attention to him was Jesus, not the religious leaders. Even though they came across as if we care about people and we love God, the hypocrisy is they really didn't. All they cared about was themselves and promoting themselves. So that's why I put, they could not help this man, but they were critical of one who could. And their position had nothing to do with the scriptures. Whenever Jesus uses the term, is it lawful? to heal on the Sabbath or not, he's challenging the fact that the reason that they have a problem with Jesus healing on the Sabbath and doing good things is because he's breaking their man-made rules that they've added to the Old Testament scriptures. He's breaking their man-made traditions. If you just study the word of God, if you just study the Old Testament, there's no prohibition to helping somebody on the Sabbath. The Bible completely says that the Sabbath was given for the benefit of man anyway. The Sabbath was given by God out of his mercy for mankind. It wasn't to cramp their style. It was to be a benefit. In fact, getting off a little bit here, but do you realize that if you just added up all the Sabbath days each year, 52, that we're supposed to rest, that in a sense God says every human being should take seven and a half weeks of rest every year? Now, depending on how you take it, obviously you can't take it all in one lump sum, but if, if every, every Jew would have taken a Sabbath off every week, seven and a half weeks of rest. But God said, if obviously, even on that day of rest, if somebody needs you, if you can help somebody, then that's what you should do. Because again, it was given to benefit man. They had misappropriated and misinterpreted the whole the whole reason why God gave man the Sabbath to begin with. And that's why they could not respond to Jesus. Because they could not come up with anything out of the Old Testament, out of the Torah, out of the five books of Moses. They couldn't come up with anything to say, well, but the scriptures say this. No, it was what they had come up with themselves. And they were putting people by their man-made traditions and all their extra rules and things that they had piled on to the Word of God. They were putting people in bondage rather than setting them free. I love the picture of Jesus here. In verse 4, notice three things. Jesus, first of all, took hold of the man. It means to, to take over, to overtake. In a sense, it, it's a reminder that that's what Jesus wants to do maybe with a situation in your life. With something in your life. He doesn't want to just, he's not here to take sides. He's here to take over and to take hold of you and to take hold of me and to take hold of that situation and actually to overtake it. And that's exactly what he did with the man with the edema. Secondly, he healed him. 
He cured him. He made this man whole. And then third, he sent him away. But the word sent him away in the Greek means to set free, to release. And I think that part of it was Jesus knew that this man was being used by the Pharisees. And he was about ready to rebuke the Pharisees. And he didn't want this innocent man who had suffered to be part of his rebuke of these religious leaders. I I didn't think he wanted him to be a part of what was going to happen from here on out. I think that's part of the reason why he said, well, he didn't need to be there. And that's what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to take a hold. He wants to bring healing to our lives and he wants to set us free. But notice, Jesus ministered in the midst of hypocrisy. He didn't let the religious leaders and the hypocrisy and the double standards and all that was going on and the fact that they were watching him closely, trying to to find anything they could to criticize him. You and I know people out there like that, even in our lives. They're watching us closely. They're just waiting for us as Christians to somehow trip up. Okay, just go out there and let your light shine the best you can and let God use your light. And don't worry about the environment that you're in. God has you there for a reason, just as Jesus rose above the hypocrisy around him. For years, I've heard people say, well, the reason I don't go to church is because churches are just filled with a bunch of hypocrites. So? Is that the reason you and I go to church or don't go to church is because there's hypocrites? There's always going to be hypocrites in churches. God calls us to minister and rise above our environment and what we're around. He calls it, if anything, then go to that church and be an example of not being a hypocrite. Don't let what's around you and who's around you and even what their motivations and all of that might be keep you back from shining the light that you know you have within you. Jesus ministered in the midst of hypocrisy. Second, Jesus ministered in the midst of pride. Notice when Jesus noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, verse 7, he told them a parable. He said to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor because a person more distinguished than you may be, be invited by your host. So the host who invited both of you will come and say to them, give this man your place. Then ashamed, you'll begin to move to the least important place. But when you're invited, go and take the least important place so that when your host approaches you, he will say to you, friend, move up here to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who share the meal with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. In Jesus' day, places of honor were who was sitting next to the host. In in Jesus' day, when you were invited over to a meal, the the table would sort of be a, a half moon. And the, and the hosts of, of the table, of, of the meal, would obviously sit in the middle. Sort of picture uh, the, the paintings, even though they're not accurate because they're all sitting up, of the Last Supper where Jesus is in the middle and then his disciples all go out. That's the way it would have been in those days. So you would have the host sitting here. So those who were sitting on either side of the host, they would have been the most honored places. And then you would have on out, on out to the very end. That's just weird to say, but... In Jesus' day, there was sort of a pecking order when you were invited. Just throw this in. How, how bad would it be if every time you were invited to somebody's home, you always got the place at the end, you know? Well, at least I got invited, maybe, you know? I don't know. 
But notice here, first of all, I want you to notice that even though in the first six verses, the religious leaders are watching Jesus closely, verse one, notice in verse seven, Jesus is watching them carefully too. He watched how people would come into that dinner uh, fellowship and that invitation, and he would watch how they would sort of fight for position. He would notice that. Well, guess what? Jesus is the Lord of glory, still notices everything today. Nothing escapes his eye. He notices how we act and how we react. He notices whether we're trying to promote ourselves or whether we're truly humbled before him. He, he notices these things. He notices how we interact with each other. He sees it all. Nothing escapes him. And because of that, he tells them, don't you realize that there's dishonor in assuming a place to which one has not been invited? Jesus simply laying down a biblical principle. Don't promote yourself. If you believe and trust in God, then let God be the one who promotes you. You won't need to promote yourself. Let God invite you to a higher place. Let other Christians invite you for more. Don't put yourself up there and promote yourself. As he says, there's always more honor in being rewarded to a more prestigious place than assuming it for yourself. And God will humble the proud, but exalt the humble. Can I just say, I'm very cautious when someone would come into our church and basically from day one getting here saying, here I am. This is the position I feel like I should have in the church. I'll just tell you, I'm like, ooh, that's, that's a red flag for me. Because who I believe God wants me and other leaders in the church looking for is other leaders and people of influence in our church are people who aren't out to promote themselves, but people who are staying low and who are humble. And if God wants all of us to have a higher, bigger place, a, a bigger sphere of influence, whatever, God can do that. God doesn't need you or me to promote ourselves. God will give us that platform. He will make it happen. Look at what he did with Joseph. Look at what he did with David. Look at what he did with people all through the Bible. When God believed it was time for them to have a more prominent role and a more prominent place, he made sure they got there. We didn't need to do it ourselves. And that's exactly what Jesus is seeing here. And he's ministering in the midst of pride. I want to say this. I don't talk about these guys often enough, but it's one of the reasons why the elders that we have at this church, Dave, Tony, and Scott, are where they are. Because when I even approached any of them about that position, their first response was one of humility. Not like, well, it's about time you asked me for that. No. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of people you want in leadership. Who, who don't feel worthy. And, and who, who truly have a, a right opinion. But these people, 
that Jesus was at the dinner with, all he saw them doing was crawling all over each other trying to be the front and center of everything that was going on. And that's why he says in verse 11, if we exalt ourselves and promote ourselves, God is going to make us low, bring us low, or reduce us. That's what the word humbled means, to literally reduce It's going to be just the opposite. Instead of giving us more prominence and more influence in God's kingdom, He's going to make sure if we are not humble and that we are exalting ourselves, that He's going to reduce our influence in the kingdom. But if we humble ourselves, if we stay low, if you will, then He'll make sure that we are lifted up on high, which is what the word exalted means, or raised if we need to be. Jesus ministering in the midst of selfish motives, verses 12 through 14. This is an interesting few verses. He then also said to the man who had invited him, when you host a dinner or a banquet, don't always invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors so you can be invited by them in return and get repaid. By the way, the reason I said it that way and added a little bit to it is because if you compare Scripture with Scripture, Jesus isn't against us having friends and inviting them over to our home and, and being part of a group and, and sharing meals with each other. That's certainly encouraged. But Jesus is simply saying, if you go on here, watch why you do what you do. Because notice verse 13. When you host an elaborate meal, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So notice I put there in the notes three things. First of all, we do need to give attention to what drives our actions. If we are only doing things for others because in our back of our mind, we're hoping or we're knowing that they're going to, in a sense, do something back for us, then Jesus says, that's not right. Don't do things, don't be motivated to do anything for others expecting something in return. That that should not be why we do what we do. We should do it just because we want to do it, whether they ever do anything back or not. Secondly, I think Jesus is saying to us to think outside our comfort zone. That yes, it's more comfortable and and we're, we're, you know much maybe more at ease when we're inviting those close friends of ours over into our home that, you know, we're... But, but every once in a while, how about inviting somebody over that's outside your comfort zone a little bit? How about every once in a while reaching out to somebody that maybe isn't in your immediate circle of friends and sharing with them the things God has blessed you with, and and sharing with them the love of Christ. What's wrong with that? Again, God's not against us having friends and, and getting together with our friends. But I think there are times where God is going to lead us to think outside our comfort zone and not always be fellowshipping and, and interacting with the same people always over and over again. Because there's many people out there that could use encouragement. And as I've shared before, I've never met a human being yet on planet Earth that said to me, Jeff, you never need to encourage me anymore. I I have all the encouragement I need for the rest of my life. I've never met anybody like that. I don't think I ever will. And then finally, Jesus, I think, is saying in this passage too, live for eternal, not immediate reward, which is exactly what was happening here. 
the reason they were inviting certain people over to their houses, the movers and shakers of the religious elite, is because they knew that they would reciprocate. And Jesus was saying, all you're out for is what you can grab and get immediately. That's why at the very end, in verse 14, he says, why don't you live and do things sometimes for people who will never be able to repay you so that God will reward you when you get to heaven? Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven rather than always trying to grab what you can down here. But obviously, Jesus was ministering in the midst of selfish motives. So again, I want you to notice something, though. In all this, this was not necessarily what you and I would consider here, this meal, an opportune environment in which to minister. In fact, if we would have known what Jesus was getting into and we would have had that same opportunity, we would have probably declined and said, no, I don't think I'm going over to that house tonight. It's going to get weird. It's going to get tense. It's just not going to be good. And I, I just want us to see that I'm not saying all the time, but I think what I see in Jesus here is that Anytime Jesus had an opportunity to be light, he was. He was always aware of the people around him and how he could be a light to them. He was always conscious of the environments and the, and the, the situations that he found himself in. And I think that's what God wants us to learn to do and to grow to do, is to always grow to a point where we can be conscious of the environment and the people around us so that we can shine our light as we get opportunity. Whether it's a positive environment or not, God still wants us to shine our light. Which is why the final thing that happens at this meal, beginning in verse 15, is that Jesus also ministers in the midst of presumption. Because even though this guy in verse 15 who says these words, I think this guy, you've got to understand, if you've ever been in a home or something where there's a dinner taking place and things get tense and testy, That's exactly what happened. I'm sure you could cut the air with a knife. So this guy, we don't even know who he is. He's trying to lighten the the atmosphere a little bit when he says, verse 15, Blessed is everyone who will feast in the kingdom of God. As if, can we get on to something else here? Because man, this is, you know. And Jesus takes that opportunity to, to correct some presumption. Because in Jesus' day, all the religious leaders that would have been at this dinner, they thought they were a shoe-in to feast in the kingdom of God. But they weren't. That's why Jesus said to him, verse 16, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time for the banquet, he sent his slave to tell those who had been invited, Come, because everything is now ready. But one after another, they all began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I must go out, see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going out to examine them. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just got married and I cannot come. So the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the master of the household was furious and said to his slave, go out quickly to the streets and alleys of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Then the slave said, sir, what you've instructed has been already done. There's still room. So the master said to his slave, go out to the highways and country roads and urge people to come in so that my house will be filled. For I tell you, not one of those individuals who were invited, who rejected, who made an excuse not to come, will ever taste my banquet. 
several things. Again, we could have spent all night just on this, but notice what Jesus here is primarily teaching to those who presumed they were going to eat in the kingdom. Jesus is saying to feast in the kingdom, one must respond personally to Jesus' invitation. You're not going to eat at this banquet just because you're a Jew, just because you know the law, just because you're religious, or in our day and age, just because you're brought up in a Christian family or you're born in America or you're such a good person. No, the only people that will eat the banquet and sit at the king's table in the kingdom are going to be those who positively respond to the invitation that Jesus gives. Second, notice in this passage, God's invitation is broad and inclusive. You know, people talk about, well, you Christians, you know, you you always go around talking, there's only one way to heaven. Yeah, there's only one way to heaven, but the Bible clearly says there's going to be people in heaven from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Because God so loves the world. And God's invitation goes out to everyone. I mean, he's... He keeps sending his slave out, going, well, go out and try to find somebody. (laughs) The Jews, obviously, who is what he's talking to here, primarily in the context, for the most part, they rejected his invitation as a nation. So that's why the Gentiles start getting invited. That's why others start getting invited. Because Jesus wants everybody, if it was up to him, to be there in the kingdom and feasting at his banquet. His invitation isn't narrow. His invitation is broad and inclusive. And notice too, his invitation is free. It doesn't cost anything. It cost Jesus Christ his very life. It cost him his blood. It cost him fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. It it cost him glory in heaven for how many years? It cost him veiling his divine attributes while he was here. But it doesn't cost us anything. It's free. And God's invitation is ample and abundant. Notice he says in verse 7, Come, everything is now ready. In other words, the provision of God is so great that if we accept his invitation, we will find in his invitation that there is everything that we will ever need. We will find in Him a totally sufficient Savior. And whatever resources, whatever strength, whatever grace, whatever mercy, anything that we need, we can find in God. His table is that abundant. And then, of course, I put there, people invent all sorts of excuses for not accepting God's invitation. And I want you to apply this not just to salvation, Because this can be applied even to you and I as Christians. Because there have been times in our life, if we're honest, where God was inviting us to join Him in something. To to serve Him in some way. To go here, to go there, to, to minister here, minister there. And we made an excuse... We told God, this is why I'm not going to be able to do that right now. And we declined God's invitation. And the biblical principle is, it doesn't matter what excuse any human being uses. There is no excuse big enough, worthy enough, to decline an invitation from God. There is none. 
It doesn't matter what the excuse is. You can go through the Bible and see every time God interacted with people who used excuses. They were never, God never said, oh, you know what? You're right, Moses. You can't speak very well, so I'll go look for somebody else. He never said that. Anytime you and I use an excuse of any kind, I don't care how good of an excuse we think it is, if God is asking us to do something, if He's inviting us to do something, and somehow we make up an excuse or use an excuse to decline God's invitation, we're the ones that miss out. We're the ones that lose. We're the ones that forfeit because God knows that this would have been good for us and we said no. And that's never a good thing to decline an invitation from God. Obviously, the greatest tragedy is when we decline an invitation to salvation. But again, even as Christians, we must be careful that if God's leading us to do something, He's inviting us to do something, that we don't make up an excuse of why we can't do it. If God didn't think we could do it, or in a sense that He could do it through us, then He wouldn't have invited us in the first place. And finally, Jesus ministered in the midst of complacency. This ties in with the message from Sunday about neglecting so great a salvation. These are tough words, but just follow along with me and I'll try to wrap this up quickly in verse 25. Large crowds were accompanying Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, does not sit down first and compute the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish the tower, all who see it will begin to make fun of him. They will say, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to confront another king in battle, will not sit down first and determine whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he cannot succeed, he will send a representative while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, not one of you can be my disciple if he does not renounce all of his possessions. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how can its flavor be restored? It is of no value for the soil or for the manure pile. It is to be thrown out. The one who has ears to hear had better listen. Some really good stuff. I'm going to only try to get through this in four minutes. First of all, top of the list, even though it doesn't really come first in this passage, Jesus here is simply teaching this. To truly follow him, we must put him above everything else. He must have primary allegiance in our life. It's not that Jesus is actually asking us to hate our father and mother. Golly, the, one of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and mother. He's using this in a relative term, not in an absolute way. He's simply saying, relative to all other relationships in your life, I should have first place. That's what being a disciple is. And notice here, Jesus is separating out the crowds. Because unlike today, Jesus doesn't get caught up in measuring his ministry by how many people are just following him as far as what kind of crowds he attracts. He's measuring his ministry by how many people are truly his disciples. And that narrows it way down. And that's why the church needs to focus 
Not on how many people get saved and even how many people are coming to our church, but how many people are disciples. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the great commission from Jesus Himself is go all into, go into all the world and make disciples. And a disciple, obviously in this passage, is different than just a person who's saved. You can be saved and not be a disciple. Because notice, in this passage, Jesus is saying, it is possible to follow Christ superficially. To not be a disciple. To not put Him first. To not have Him as the primary allegiance of my life. But if you want to be my disciple, and by the way, the word disciple means to grow, to increase. You want to grow and increase? Then this is what we need to do. Again, Jesus was ministering in the midst of, ah, I'm just, you know, it's just like today you hear, like, I'm just glad I'm saved and my sins are forgiven. I'm on my way to heaven. They have, people have a total misunderstanding of what salvation is all about. That's why I spent so much time Sunday trying to, again, remind all of us what salvation really is. It's not just a moment in time decision that I made for Christ back here. It's something that I did there, but it should have ongoing results for the rest of my life and actually will carry weight even into eternity. If I understand biblical salvation. Obviously here in this passage too, Jesus is teaching. To follow Christ truly, I must consider the cost. We could also use the word expense or price. In other words, if I truly want to be a disciple of Christ, I've got to come to the realization that it's going to cost me something. And many Christians today aren't willing to pay the price it takes to be a disciple. Of Jesus Christ. And notice here, Jesus is not, he is totally against impulsive decisions, decisions that are made emotionally in the, in the heat of the moment. Because he says, it is wiser to sit down. That implies you're going to consider carefully what, what you need to do. You're going to take time. You're not just going to impulsively make a decision. You're going to sit down and you're literally going to count the cost. And there is always a cost to being a disciple. Let me explain it this way. And I, obviously I had to read about this because in there, no way am I getting ready to climb Mount Everest, okay? It costs approximately $70,000 to climb Mount Everest when you consider everything that needs to happen to make that happen. So say some wealthy businessman, this is a desire of yours, and some wealthy businessman gives you a gift of $70,000 so that you can climb Mount Everest. In a sense then, climbing Mount Everest is free, just like salvation is free. But if you want to climb that mountain, even though it was paid for, you still have to pay a price. If you and I want to climb that mountain, then we got to start training hard every day of our lives. In fact, many people have died trying to climb Mount Everest. It may, it may cost us our life. So even though it's free, it still costs us something to get to the top of that mountain. That's exactly what discipleship and salvation is all about. Salvation is free. It's been totally paid for. But if I want to climb the mountain of discipleship, it's going to cost me something. Just like it would cost me to climb that mountain even if it was paid for by somebody else. And then Jesus writes here, 
or tells us here, we must consider the cost of not following Christ. He basically gives us three reasons or three things that will happen if we don't follow Christ. And he uses them as these illustrations. First of all, he talks about the man, the builder, who tries to build the tower and figures out he doesn't have enough to finish it. One of the costs of not following Jesus Christ is I won't finish well. I won't be a finisher. I won't be able to see anything through spiritually. Secondly, he talks about the king going to war against the other king. The other thing that will cost me if I truly don't want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is I won't see as many victories in my Christian life as I could if I would have been a disciple. Because if you have a Christian on this side and a true disciple of Jesus Christ on this side, this person who's a disciple is going to see more victory. They're going to see more things conquered in their life through the power of Christ. They're going to see more things that they were able to overcome in the power of Christ because of their spiritual growth and willingness to be a disciple than this complacent, satisfied Christian over here who was just satisfied to be saved, and that was it. And then finally, it's going to cost us greater significant service in our life, which I think is what verse 34 and 35 is all about, salt. Jesus says salt's good, but if the salt becomes diluted, if it loses its strength, and in Jesus' day, the salt that they used primarily came from marshes, and it was very easily diluted. It, it, it would lose its flavor pretty easily unless it was carefully paid attention to And so it wouldn't matter how much salt you put on something. It doesn't matter how much you use if it doesn't have any strength or any flavor left. And that's why in this passage, Jesus is basically also teaching something very important. It's not how many people follow me that's really going to make a difference. It's the distinctiveness of people's lives that are going to make the difference. If I just have a few people who are truly disciples of mine, who are putting me first, then they're going to make a greater impact than thousands of casual, complacent followers who aren't. Because it doesn't matter how much salt you have if the salt has lost its strength and flavor. But a little bit of salt with lots of flavor and lots of strength can make a big difference and make a big impact. And that's what Jesus wants to encourage us with in Luke chapter 14. God, thank you for helping me get through that. So a challenge to us. Notice what Jesus was ministering in the midst of. Hypocrisy, pride, selfish motives, presumption, complacency, and yet the light of God shined through. And God may be asking you at times, with family, with friends, with co-workers, with whoever, you may and I may be put in very challenging situations and environments where we may be the only light there. God says, okay. Look at it as that God is trusting you enough to put you there so that the light of Jesus can shine in the midst of all that. Let God help you rise above it all and be a light for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you that Jesus lays out for us such a great example. An example that he didn't get discouraged or deterred in in what you called him to in spite of what was going on around him. He didn't focus on 
those who were rejecting him and questioning him and, and all of that. He focused on you and what you had called him to. And he knew that if he would be true, as he calls us to be true, that he can use our lives to make an impact on those who are ready, whose hearts are open and receptive. So Lord, help us to rise up and to be willing to be that light wherever you place us. And help us, Lord, to be in a place of growth with you that if you invite us to do something for you, that we don't make excuses. That we simply say, as others have said, here am I, Lord, send me. Go with us the rest of this week, God. Use us as only the God of the universe can use us. Open up doors, God, that we could never open up ourselves. Help us to, Lord, just shine your light and be conscious, Lord, of what's going on around us and who's around us at all times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks. Have a great week. We'll see you on Sunday or next Tuesday.